This is WPRB in Princeton, New Jersey, community-supported independent radio. And now at 5 p.m., it's news and culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Community-supported independent radio. That's what WPRB is, a radio station powered by our community. Now, that community can be seen in a micro-level way. The university on whose land we sit, the town where our transmitter is located, the state where we reside, or on the macro level. Powered by the network of people within our region of listenership or around the world who contribute to life in this interconnected web of institutions, people, and systems of support on which WPRB relies. Community is this amorphous term, but it's still one that holds weight. To contribute to a community, to improve it, enrich it, strengthen it, preserve it, is no small matter. We've dedicated this episode of WPRB News and Culture to those who spend their time and energy building community and working to change it for the better. In this Change Makers episode, as we're calling it, you'll hear four stories of people and organizations in our local community. Political activists, mutual aid organizations, individuals fighting for their rights, and academics working in the public interest, all orbiting this Delaware Valley region we call home here at WPRB. First up, Julian Hartman Siegel and Ashley Olenkowitz learn more about the efforts to elect Ashley Ahaz, a Democrat, in Pennsylvania's first district, just across the river from Princeton. Next, Clara McWeenie and Izzy Jacobson speak to Naomi Hess, a recent graduate of Princeton University who spent much of her life fighting for disability rights, both here in Princeton, New Jersey, and in our nation's capital. Leah Opperman and Mira Ho Chen talked to civil rights lawyer, organizer, and Princeton visiting professor Udi Ofer, the former executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of New Jersey, about his work in the discourse over cannabis legalization in Princeton. And finally, I, Adam Sanders, learn more about the new craze of mutual aid in the world of community organizing and explore how it works at Princeton Mutual Aid right here in town. Stick around, we'll be right back. WPRB wants you to know that if you live, work, go to school, or pay taxes in the city of Philadelphia, you should sign up for a free Library of Philadelphia library card. You can gain online access to ebooks, audiobooks, movies, music, digital learning resources, online programming, and much more. To apply for a card or learn more, visit freelibrary.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community supported, independent radio. First up, Julian Hartman Siegel and Ashley Olenkowitz learn more about the efforts to elect Ashley Ahaz, a Democrat, in Pennsylvania's first district, just across the river from Princeton. As someone who's worked in politics for many years, I think it's pointless to say that there's one silver bullet for every congressional race everywhere. I would say this. Um, I have never seen in my career in politics more people come out of the woodwork who have never considered voting for a Democrat in their entire life than I have during this cycle, and that is because of the Dobbs decision. 
That was John Lindsay, a representative for Ashley Ahaz's campaign, describing the nature of the upcoming battle for a congressional seat in the swing district of Pennsylvania's first congressional district, PA01. But the really interesting part about PA01 is that what you're looking at, what you're actually looking at in terms of it being a toss-up, it being like a quintessential swing district in the country. And that was McGuire Shillette, an intern with the Ahaz campaign. However, Shillette is not speaking with us as representative of the campaign. Now, to truly understand the significance of this race and how Ashley Ahaz is mobilizing voters and looking to change her district, we have to first learn about the history of Pennsylvania's first congressional district. PA1 is largely considered to be the bellwether county of the bellwether state. The majority of the district is Bucks County. This is a district that President Biden carried by uh, about five points and has both has one of one of the remaining split ticketing districts left in the US because in the in the same election that Biden carried it by 5 um, they voted for the current Republican incumbent member of the House um, by double digits. So it's it's a very competitive district, um, one where the voters are very, very discerning. And um, right now, the race is very tight. For WPRB News and Culture, this is Ashley Olinkowitz. And Julian Hartman-Siegel. Ashley Ahas, the Democratic candidate in Pennsylvania's first congressional district, is going up against Republican incumbent Brian Fitzpatrick for a hotly contested seat in a district characterized by its ever-changing partisan nature. But who is Ashley Ahas? She grew up in southeastern PA to a single mother household. And like a lot of families in Pennsylvania, she struggled with the hard stuff. You know, um, family had mental health challenges, uh, struggled with some substance abuse. And she saw joining the military, as many young people do, as an economic path out of poverty. So she joined the Army at 17 and was lucky enough to also be accepted to West Point. And thanks to the American taxpayer, received an undergraduate education and then served <clears throat> for served her time in the military as a logistics officer, as an Apache helicopter pilot. She graduated as the only woman in her Apache class and also overseas and here at home. And then after the army, she used her GI Bill to get her master's degree from the University of Oxford, becoming the first member of her family to receive a master's degree, and then worked as a COVID-19 policy writer at a, at a county level. But what really sets Ahaz apart can't be easily attained or faked. People will be like the least um, like candidates across the country, you know, incumbents like Republicans, Democrats, representatives, senators, right? They'll be anything but normal, and they'll say, they'll say, look how average I am, look how relatable I am, look at, look at these things I grew up with, right? It's very rare you get to see somebody who's actually, like, that genuine. And it's funny, because even me saying it almost doesn't seem believable, because it's like, everybody wants that genuinity to be so baked into themselves, right? But with Ashley, that's not a struggle. That's not a, that's not a strategy. That's who she is. In contrast... Shillette and Lindsay make the case that the same cannot be said of Fitzpatrick. He has done a very good job of sort of flip-flopping back and forth on enough issues that everyone sort of thinks he's their friend. Brian Fitzpatrick, who's the Republican incumbent, um, this is sort of a family business. His brother held this seat before. He's got a lot of name ID there. People don't dislike Brian Fitzpatrick. He's not like mini Trump on a podium, like going to high schools and being like, we need to build another wall or something like that. In terms of like the perception 
of a moderate Republican. Brian Fitzpatrick is one of the only ones out he there. He likes to do things like he co-sponsored the PRO Act, which is um, a, a piece of legislation protecting the right to organize, um, but then votes against other forms of labor protections. Or, or he likes to talk about the importance of supporting women and girls um, and then votes against the Women's Health Protection Act twice. So I think he, he does a good job of staying sort of in the middle or at least flipping flipping back and forth enough on enough issues that everybody can sort of find a reason to like him. Rather than flip-flopping, the Haas campaign has always been staunchly pro-choice and believes that now the most important issue facing voters in their district is the right for women to choose. Abortion rights have come to dominate national politics after the Supreme Court released the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade. The reason why he is under a lot more scrutiny this time around than perhaps in previous elections is sort of the only thing he's never really flipped back and forth on is um, the right to choose. He's been ardently pro-life his entire time in Congress. And he, like I mentioned, he voted against the Women's Health Protection Act in Congress twice, including 21 days after the Dobbs decision. And so we feel fairly strongly that this is a, a unique opportunity to defeat Brian um, and to bring someone into Congress that is going to have a spine and, and have um, you know, a, a strong moral compass that will be aimed squarely at the needs and rights of, of the constituents of PA1. Abortion is what matters, right? It's, it's one of the biggest issues this cycle, if not the largest singular policy prescription issue. And this is a pro-choice district. Ashley is a pro-choice candidate. And Brian Fitzpatrick is an anti-choice candidate. And we'll see how that impacts things come November. But I think that she's very hopeful. And I think that a lot of people in the district are a little less than happy um, about Brian Fitzpatrick's record on that. Ahaz is marked by a genuinity not commonly found in congressional candidates and is dedicated to protecting the rights of women. Fathers who are sending their children off to, to college are now worried about the notion that if their daughter, for instance, is sexually assaulted, she may not have access to reproductive health in the state where she's going to school. There are, there are veterans who are flabbergasted by the notion that active duty service members who do not get to choose where they are stationed are now being sent forcefully, you know, without any consent to states where they are effectively losing reproductive freedom because of where they are being stationed. Um, and, and I think those dynamics are things that we have never seen before. And for some voters are things they never really had to consider because on some level, I think even a lot of conservatives didn't necessarily believe that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. In terms of being a candidate and as a person, I, I can't be more proud of Ashley. And I can't, I can't even like, I can't even propose to you like a hypothetical of someone better for our district or even better for the country really. Um, you know, her being so linked to the issues, whether it being pro-choice or whether, you know, having that experience growing up with those economic issues that we've spoken to with, you know, um, making sure healthcare is more affordable, you know, making sure that the cost of living decreases for the average person, right? It's really rare you have somebody with both the professional chops and the people chops. We're saying that if you are concerned about the right to choose, if you're concerned about these threats to democracy, if you're concerned about protecting the right to privacy, then there's only one candidate in this race that is consistently going to protect those things. 
This is Julian Hartman Siegel. And this is Ashley Alinkowitz. Thanks for listening to WPRB News and Culture. WPRB wants you to know that if you're a renter in Philadelphia, you should know your rights. PhillyTenant.org has everything you need to know about your rights and obligations as a tenant in Philadelphia. You can find information about security deposits, leases, evictions, repair, lead testing, housing assistance, and much more. That's PhillyTenant.org. A live help for low-income Philadelphia renters is also available by phone 9 a.m. through 7 p.m. Monday through Friday at 267-443-2500. This has been a public service announcement from WPRV Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next, Clara McWeenie and Izzy Jacobson speak to Naomi Hess, a recent graduate of Princeton University who spent much of her life fighting for disability rights, both here in Princeton, New Jersey, and in our nation's capital. I do think that perhaps having a disability to make me a little more aware of what it means to be someone who kind of differs from the norm. And obviously, I'm not saying I understand all experiences with diversity, but I really made an effort to think about people who are often excluded from the narrative. When thinking about forms of activism at Princeton, the name Naomi Hess typically comes to mind. Hess, who graduated from Princeton in 2022, was a champion for disability rights, from envisioning the installation of an elevator in Nassau Hall, Princeton's oldest building, to forming a student government disability task force. Her advocacy fundamentally changed the way Princeton thinks about accessibility on campus. Today, WPRB sat down with Hess to learn more about her on-campus activism, as well as her life outside of Princeton. Hi everyone, my name is Naomi Hess. I am from the class of 2022. I'm also 22 years old. Hess's activism started well before her time at Princeton. She first found her voice at 11, when she was named the Maryland State Ambassador for the Muscular Dystrophy Association. So I have muscular dystrophy and that organization is a really big supporter of children and adults um, with muscular dystrophy. So what this position meant was I got to travel around the state. I'm from Maryland, so I traveled around Maryland, kind of representing the organization um, and speaking about the importance of funded research to better support patients. The ambassadorship didn't just fall into her lap. Hess had experience gathering community momentum around disability rights and research, even before age 11. Throughout my childhood, I raised a lot of money for the Muscular Dystrophy Association, uh, like over $80,000 uh, over like a 10-year period. So not, not all at once. Uh, so uh, I think I'm as well-known in the local community. Upon entering high school, Hess continued her passion for advocacy. She founded her school's chapter of Girl Up. It's an organization associated with the United Nations Foundation uh, that supports women and girls around the world um, in access and education, reproductive health, employment, and other uh, empowerment opportunities. Hess came to recognize that her identity as a person with a disability very much intersected with her other core identity of being a woman. 
when someone belongs to one category of a less marginalized community, that identities all kind of compound with each other. So for instance, women with disabilities face challenges that, you know, perhaps men with disabilities don't. And then if you look at women of color who also have disabilities, um, they face even additional challenges in access and healthcare and just basic human rights in general. So I find it really important to make sure that I understand the full lens of diversity and whatever efforts I do. Um, in disability, this is often referred to as like a lens of disability justice, which recognizes that disability is not a monolith. There's so many intersections and varieties, and it's important to bring people in from all sorts of communities. When Hess came to Princeton, she took with her this intersectional lens of disability, as she calls it, to enact change within the community. She formed the Undergraduate Student Government Disability Task Force, which created education sessions and discussions for campus leaders and first-year students alike. I really wanted there to be conversations about disability when there weren't in the past, because I often find that unless someone brings up this topic of disability and, in- and inclusivity, sometimes that's left out. Disability isn't often part of diversity conversations when it's really the largest minority group. About 25% of Americans have some sort of disability. Um, so I think always having to be the one to bring it up could be a little tiring at times. But I felt like I wanted to and I needed to because I wanted to see change. I wanted to help the university become more accessible for all those other students who might want to apply and might want to attend. The task force also advocated for integral improvements to campus infrastructure, as well as created an avenue for Hess to communicate effectively with the administrators on behalf of the community of students with disabilities. During COVID, um, there was a meeting, that, uh, there was a series of meetings that were convened between people associated with the task force and people from um, like BP Calhoun and people from UHS um, to make sure that the needs of disabled students were considered in the pandemic response. It took meeting Paul Haga, a former university trustee and former NPR CEO, to eventually make Nassau Hall wheelchair accessible. Haga came to her sophomore year journalism class as a speaker, and at the end of his lecture, asked the class if they had any questions for a university trustee. Naomi took him up on the offer. I asked him, like, how can university become more accessible? And he's like, I think we should follow up on that. So he set up some conversations, first between me and him, but eventually with Hugh Wayne, who is the vice president of facilities. So I remember quite clearly, I had this lunch with him, um, I guess maybe very early in sophomore spring, um, and it was in Prospect's house. And we got to talking about Nassau Hall. And I pointed out how disheartening it was that this is where the administrators are housed. And it's the centerpiece of campus. Like it's one of, it's probably the most famous building at Princeton and I can't access it. And I think this conversation really um, encouraged and motivated him and the rest of the administration to make the building accessible. The elevator was finished in August 2021. And um, they asked me to test it out, uh, to be the first wheelchair user to enter the building without any assistance. But I also think it's a symbol because it's not the most frequent building that I need to visit. Uh, but in my mind, if they can make this building that is so old and so important and accessible, there's no limit to what Princeton can do to improve the physical infrastructure of its campus to make sure that myself and other students with disabilities have the access that we should. 
Hess also wanted to articulate that her fight for disability rights and accessibility at Princeton was not an individual one. I really want to shout out um, the disability community at Princeton. They're really, really amazing students. Um, and I feel like I couldn't have done anything without the community I, I had. Um, a lot of this is because of the student group, the Disability Collective, or DISTO for short. And knowing that I wasn't alone in my experiences really motivated me to do as much as possible for the community in general. It makes me proud to know that hopefully the efforts that I did at Princeton will make it better for the future. I mean, I can't say it was always easy. Like I said, like sometimes it's hard to always be the one to ask for change. But also, I wasn't the only one. The community, the disability community was right there alongside with me and I couldn't have done anything that I did without them. I didn't do this alone. It took a lot of effort from the whole community. All this advocacy, all this activism, it doesn't stop with me. I'm so proud um, to see what the next generation will do. Though she found a home among many communities at Princeton, Hess felt particularly passionate about the home she found in the Center for Jewish Life. She started Disability Awareness Shabbat with the help of Rabbi Ira Dunn and other peers and brought prominent speakers to campus like the disability advocate and artist, Chella Mann. I knew going into Princeton that I wanted to be active in Jewish life, and um, I'm really grateful for my time at the CJL. Um, I noticed pretty early on that there were all these amazing Shabbats and other events um, that related to the intersections between Judaism and other identities. Um, I'm very close to Rabbi Ira Dunn, and in early spring semester of my freshman year, I asked him, hey, what, why isn't there a disability spot? And he's like, I think you should go for it. So I had a very quick turnaround freshman year. Like we're talking like two to three weeks, but I put something together. I spoke, Liz Erickson, the director of the Office of Disability Services spoke. Um, and it was really, really great to see students show up for this event and to be able to highlight the need for accessibility within and outside of the Jewish spaces on campus. So at these Shabbat events, it was just another way to make sure that disability was talked about, which I really made my mission throughout my time at Princeton. Hess noted feeling accepted in her identity as a person with a disability soon into her time in the Princeton Jewish community. Something that I noticed at the CJL um, was that instead of saying, please stand at the appropriate time during the religious services, most of the rabbis would now say, please stand if you're able. And just that small little linguistic shift shows that they're actively considering the needs of students with disabilities. Of course, Hess's advocacy did not end when she graduated last spring. She is currently working as a health research associate at Mathematica, a Washington, D.C.-based policy think tank. She was also elected to the University Board of Trustees as the Class of 2022 representative, a position she feels honored to hold. It's really great to be working in a, in a field that I care about so much, and I hope to continue that for the rest of my career. I really wanted to dedicate my work uh, in general to supporting people with disabilities. And I think um, my classes and my extracurriculars at Princeton definitely motivated me to pursue this line of work. To end the interview, Hess remarked on the importance of highlighting a diverse array of bodies and the bond she feels with others in her community. I do think having a disability does create kind of a common bond. Um, I know often if I see someone in a wheelchair, on the street, we kind of made me smile because maybe maybe because you know we see other people who look like us. So just passing someone who has a similar body um, honestly means a lot. 
Um, and I think that's why the Display Collective Student Group um, has come to mean so much to me and so many other people. Because without that, I, I was at Princeton before the club was around. It was often hard to find other students with disabilities. And just having uh, people who you can really relate to is really meaningful. Um, and I know that, um, sorry. <laughs> no, I, I guess I just have to say, I know that it's not always easy being a student with a disability, but I think going to Princeton um, is a really wonderful experience. And I hope that all students can feel um, included and belong like they deserve. And in case you were wondering about Naomi's review of the Nassau Hall elevator. I can assure you the elevator works perfectly. For WPRB, this has been Izzy Jacobson and Clara McQueenie. Public art program exists to provide transformative experiences, progressive public discourse, and economic stimulus to the city of Philadelphia through participatory public art that beautifies, advocacy that inspires, and educational programming and employment opportunities that empower. Take a tour and hear some of the stories behind more than 4,000 murals that grace our city. Learn more by following at Mural Arts on Twitter and Instagram and by visiting muralarts.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. Next, Leah Opperman and Mira Ho Chen talk to civil rights lawyer, organizer, and Princeton visiting professor Udi Ofer the former executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of New Jersey, about his work in the discourse over cannabis legalization in Princeton. The conversation surrounding social media activism is often framed in a negative light. It is deemed as performative or as a way to signal one's virtue without having to do any of the hard work that it takes to actually dismantle systems of oppression and work towards a more just world. However, we wanted to investigate this claim and actually look into the efficacy of using social media, specifically Twitter, as a way to promote change, especially when one has a large platform. So we spoke to a member of the Princeton faculty who has over 12,000 followers on Twitter about the duty of the public intellectual and how social media could potentially play a huge role in larger advocacy efforts. My name is Udi Ofer. I'm the James L. Weinberg visiting professor and lecturer in, in uh, SPIA. I'm also the founding director of our new policy advocacy clinic at SPIA, which is really exciting. And for those who don't know, SPIA is the School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton. And up until about a month ago, I was also the Deputy National Political Director of the ACLU. I had been at the ACLU for 20 years, but um, left um, last month to come here to Princeton full time, which is really exciting. So we first asked him why he decided to download Twitter in the first place. I think I originally got it because I felt like there was a lot I wanted to say, and, and I felt like this gave me a new way to say it. I did not think that I would eventually have, you know, so many followers. But I remember after my first year of using it and beginning to engage in like policy dialogue, I actually got invited to speak um, at an event. And it was all about how, you know, 
social justice leaders can use social media as a way to help their cause. And at that time, I had like a few hundred followers. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, no one's listening to me. They just like hearing me rant. Um, but here we are, right? Um, so, so I don't know. I think, look, may, I think it was a genuine desire to express my viewpoints in a way that I thought was helpful. So do you believe your online presence contributed to your work as an organizer? I mean, it seems yeah, like it has. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I actually, so, you know, in my policy advocacy clinic, I talk about, you know, different organizing tactics. Um, and digital organizing is a tactic, right? It encompasses much more than what I'm describing here, but it is a tactic. Now, I do believe that you cannot rely on it solely. And I do think that's a danger in some organizing tactics these days where people just rely on the online presence. I believe there's you know necessity for distributive organizing models, for one-to-one -on -one interactions, for even like old school phone calls as an organizing tactic, but this is absolutely one of them. You know, as someone who's now you know educating the next generation of advocates, um, I do think that you know social media plays a critical role in, in advocacy efforts, but it can never be the sole tactic deployed. And we found this approach to social media activism extremely illuminating. To use a social media platform not as a way to vaguely spread awareness, but as a calculated tactic to advance specific policy goals or even do important interventional work. And this is not to say that he's not aware of the crazy negative things that happen on the platform. You know, I think there's a lot of negativity out there on social media, and I think a lot of it is legitimate. I do think people become like obsessive about it. It becomes all about the clicks. I will say from my personal use, I've really always looked at it as a way to advance um, my, my values and my beliefs. Um, you know, I've worn an advocate hat for the last 20 years. I've, you know, at any one time when I was at the ACLU, we had about um, a dozen campaigns that we were running at different places in the country. And this was a way to help achieve our policy goals. But I think now as like, you know, both solely an academic and even when I was an academic and, and an advocate, um, I see it as a way to help the conversation in the United States about issues that I know about and care about. And I think it's incredible the access to information that we have. Um, and when it's used right, it could, you know, it could be really powerful. Of course, social media is not the end-all be-all. It is just one small facet that can help activists connect with each other, educate people on important issues, and promote their policy initiatives to a large group of people. On that note, the conversation was much more than just about Twitter. We also spoke to Ofer about his work in reducing mass incarceration and advancing cannabis justice. Ofer specializes in working to end mass incarceration and has been working towards it during his time as a civil rights attorney at the ACLU and as a professor at Princeton. He spoke to us at WPRB about his efforts. My passion will always be in the movement to end mass incarceration. One out of every two adults in the United States either has been or knows someone who is formerly incarcerated. It's a problem that affects everyone. Tens of millions of people are living with a criminal record in the United States, and there are more than 50,000 collateral consequences for having that record. Right? We still have states in America where something around 15% of the black population is disenfranchised 
literally cannot vote solely because of their criminal record. You know, that's why we call so much of this struggle the new Jim Crow. Um, so that's what I'm most passionate about and I believe is our greatest injustice. And that's the context for these other conversations that we're having around cannabis, around the war on drugs and so forth. I have been involved in campaigns that have led to tens of thousands of fewer people incarcerated in the United States. You know, during my 20 years as a civil rights attorney, as a policy advocate, um, I have been involved in campaigns that have led to hundreds of laws passed, whether around bail reform, mandatory minimum sentencing, parole reentry, that have led to tens of thousands of fewer people incarcerated. Ofer spoke to us specifically about New Jersey, which has one of the highest decarceration rates, but emphasized that it still disproportionately affects black and brown communities. New Jersey has one of the highest um, um, decarceration successes in the nation. New Jersey has seen about a 55 to 60 percent reduction in its incarcerated population from its peak in the late um, uh, kind of 2008-2009. So New Jersey has actually one of the lower incarceration rates in America. It has already seen about a 60% reduction and it continues to be one of the safest states in America. So in some ways New Jersey is a, a, a positive story of how you could be both safe and free, right? Of how you could reduce incarceration dramatically but also continue to be a safe community. At the same time, New Jersey also has some of the worst uh, racial disparities in incarceration. So I like to always talk about New Jersey as the canary in the coal mine on the story of how do you end mass incarceration. We've been incredibly successful in that we have so many fewer people incarcerated, particularly in the juveniles, um, but the people who are still incarcerated are way disproportionately bl black and brown New Jerseyans. In addition to his advocacy efforts online with the ACLU as a lawyer, and at Princeton University, Ofer also served as a member of the Cannabis Task Force in Princeton Town, where him and other members strive to open a dispensary in the town with equity efforts in mind. Although the task force disbanded, Ofer spoke to us about his experience. It was a weird experience and it was a disappointing experience. Um, and maybe I came into it a bit naive. Um, first of all, the task force itself, I loved. You know, Princeton brought together a group of people um, who came from really varied life experiences, right? The people on the task force were, some of them were appointed by the police department or recommended by the police departments, other by the Board of Health or, you know, the public schools, other by just the council members. And they brought us all together and they were like, okay, look, the vast, vast majority of the Princeton community voted for legalization. We as a town are trying to figure out what to do with that. Um, if we open up a dispensary, if we open up businesses, what should that look like? discuss amongst yourselves, right? And it was a beautiful conversation that lasted about seven months that everyone took their job really seriously. Each one of our meetings was open to the public. Anyone could join it. We had four meetings that the sole purpose of it was to hear from the public. And we came up with a recommendation. And it was unanimous. I just described a very varied group of people. Our recommendations were unanimous. And the recommendations were, yes, Princeton should allow cannabis businesses but it should do so in a way to advance social and racial justice. You know, recognizing that the state of New Jersey historically had had one of the highest rates of cannabis arrests in the nation, 
recognizing that there were extreme racial disparities in who got arrested for cannabis possession in, the, in New Jersey, even though blacks and whites use cannabis in the same rates. Um, um, and Princeton, the town itself, also, it never had a high volume of cannabis arrest. But when it did arrest people, it was consistently disproportionately black people in the town of Princeton. Way out of whack with the percentage of people who live here, even when you take into consideration, you know, this being a tourist town in some ways. So Princeton has a long and, and, and ugly history of, of cannabis injustice. So we looked at this as a way to, you know, to begin fixing those mistakes of the past. So we wanted uh, the, the town to open up a dispensary, to prioritize allowing businesses that um, are either owned or staffed by formerly incarcerated people to use the tax revenue as a way to give back to communities in Princeton that have historically been targeted by the war on cannabis. The council members we worked with loved it. There was unanimity, and then the backlash began. And I don't know what to make of it still. You know, it was loud. Um, it was fierce. It's impossible to know, like, how much genuinely represented the broader community. Actually, at one point, I wanted to commission a poll to try to have actually a data-driven analysis of, but Princeton is too small to be able to do a scientific poll. But, but they won. You know, they won in the sense of they got the town to do nothing. And it's, it's very disappointing. There are other towns across the country, like Evanston, Illinois, that are in the lead on this issue and are using, you know, cannabis revenue as a way to begin healing from a decades-old war on drugs or war on cannabis. And here at Princeton, we didn't do that. He also spoke with us about the future of Princeton Town and how cannabis could possibly come there in the future. There's no question that at some point in the future, there will be a cannabis business in yeah. Princeton. Um, the question will be, will it just be yet another business profiting or will it be done in a social, social justice oriented way where um, it will be a way to begin repairing the harm from the war on cannabis and that I don't know. On the lines of cannabis and mass incarceration, last week, Biden pardoned thousands convicted of marijuana possession under the law. Ofer was quoted in the New York Times immediately following the pardon about his thoughts on the issue, which he spoke to us about. I think there are two things that I want to emphasize, and I tried to capture it in the quote, and I think it did. One is to celebrate it. It's true. Um, it's a big deal. It's a big deal in the sense it represents a major milestone moment in, in, in federal policy um, around how, will the, how does the federal government view at least cannabis possession. And I, and I thought that was important, and that's why I called it you know, an important moment. But at the same time, um, from a policy perspective, it's very limiting in that it, he basically took the most narrow path possible to make this broader political point. So that's why I called it a drop in an ocean of injustice. And I think that's right, right? I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know, close to 2 million people are incarcerated in the United States on any given day. This doesn't impact anyone who's currently incarcerated. And it applies only to a few thousand people who have been incarcerated in the past, in the sense of it clears their federal record on this particular issue. That's a drop in the, in, 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 in the bucket is even an overstatement. It's an ocean. 
so I tried to drive home both points. You know, I don't want to minimize it. And I, look, I've dealt a lot with the White House. I was at the White House a few months ago when the president, you know, issued an executive order on policing. You know, they have a thin skin sometimes, you know, and they, they, they don't like it when they do something. And the criticism is, well, that wasn't far enough without recognizing that at least they did something. And I think that's legitimate, right? I mean, we got to meet people where they are. So, I, so I, I tried to capture both sentiments, right? To say, look, this is important and, and, and it's a milestone moment, but man, do, is this just yeah. one small thing? And that's accurate. Look, but they did more than, President Biden just did more than the town of Princeton did. Yeah. You know, the town of Princeton couldn't even do that small incremental step. So, so good job, Biden. And here's a lot more that you need to do. This is Leah. And this is Mira. And this is WPRB. WPRB wants you to know about Table to Table. They are a community-based food rescue program in northern New Jersey that collects fresh and perishable food that would otherwise be wasted and delivers it to organizations that serve the hungry in Bergen, Essex, Hudson, and Passaic counties. They rescue this healthy food from about 150 donors, supermarkets, food distributors, restaurants, and commercial kitchens, and deliver it the same day, free of charge to over 250 community organizations, including food pantries, shelters, daycare and after-school programs, senior adult centers, and programs serving the working poor. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit tabletotable.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio. And finally, I, Adam Sanders, learn more about the new craze of mutual aid in the world of community organizing and explore how it works at Princeton Mutual Aid right here in town. I think when most of us think of the main ways to help others, we think of charity. Large pools of money, foundations, with people to administer them, doling out grants and services to help those in need. But in recent years, that model has come under critique. Charity, as it's typically been arranged, these people argue, reinforces power structures like racism, classism, and the capitalist mode of production that maybe we don't want to allow to control our structures of social support. The new solution? Mutual aid. Joel Islar of the University of Georgia says that mutual aid is not charity, but the building and continuing of new social relations where people give what they can and get what they need outside of unjust systems of power. In our own backyards, Princeton Mutual Aid has emerged as an organization of this type, linking those with means to those without, a democratic social safety net that does not reinforce oppressive systems, or tries not to. I spoke to Christopher Lugo, a Princeton student involved with PMA, to learn more about how this new concept of community action works. My name is Christopher. Um, I'm a fourth year undergraduate uh, at Princeton. Um, I study public policy here. 
Um, and I've been involved with uh, Princeton Mutual Aid, or PMA, for about um, a year, a year and a half now. Chris got involved with PMA during the height of the pandemic, while Princeton students were stuck learning from home. I was in particular excited by some of the victories that PMA had had, increasing community members' access to vaccines. When Princeton initially announced that vaccines were going to be distributed on campus, uh, those, those were not going to be available to members of the community. Um, but, you know, it was PMA working with many other organizations in town, like, like Unidad Latina, um, who um, made that possible. I asked him to tell me more about the organization's goals and its ethics. What separates it from a charity? Well, Princeton Mutual Aid is a local mutual aid organization. What mutual aid is might not be uh, apparent you know, to everyone. Um, not everyone is familiar with the term, although it certainly has become much more popular um, in maybe the two, two and a half years uh, since the pandemic. Typically, um, I think the most accessible way to define mutual aid for someone who's not familiar with the subject is to contrast it with uh, charity. Charity, um, you know, broadly speaking, is kind of this uh, top-down institution. There are people who have sort of resources, skills, knowledge, um, and they give them to the kind of disempowered or vulnerable class who don't have access to those. What this can do is it can reinforce kind of social stratifications, right? It can be very demeaning um, to have to go to a charitable organization and have to, you know, um, that organization might have means testing. They might refuse to give you assistance if you don't meet certain qualifications. They might ask you to, yeah, engage in some kind of activity or behavior. It, for example, if you are requesting assistance from a religious organization, they might ask that you refrain from certain activities that they might deem immoral. Chris seemed optimistic about the potential for mutual aid to make helping our neighbors a more democratic process, one where those with means and those with less work on an equal playing field to level the ground between them. And so uh, mutual aid stands um, in contrast to that because we do not make any distinctions about who receives assistance from us. Everyone is equally uh, worthy of, of, of help. People do not just need to receive assistance, but are also capable of, of giving assistance, right? People do have you know, knowledge, expertise, and skills that they can share with their community if given the opportunity to do so. Mutual aid serves as a, as, um, a place where we try to facilitate that as well, to empower people um, so that they aren't just passively accepting this help um, or forced to engage in kind of uh, demeaning behavior in order to receive it. And Chris seems to see that democratizing this social safety net makes it a more effective tool for helping others. Mutual aid just gets help closer to people than top-down charity ever could. I think what it allows is this kind of close interpersonal uh, relationships that are able to uh, develop from the you know, interactions that, that uh, we have in the process of uh, distributing this help, right? Meeting new people, building networks for advocacy and other things. These are real people that you work with. You're able to build a relationship with them, see how they're doing, see, uh, help them when they need help, and also provide a platform for them to help others once they've been, once they've received the assistance that they needed to get out of, you know, whatever hole they'd been stuck in, whether that's like broken car uh, that they couldn't pay to get fixed without help from PMA, um, or, you know, they lost their job and, um, weren't eligible for unemployment, and PMA helps them with groceries until they can get back on their feet, this sort of thing. There's something very rewarding about the kind of very like close-knit community and solidarity that we have. Apart from its philosophical and ethical goals of democratizing social aid, PMA has the tangible goals of providing good and effective support to those who need it in the Princeton area, 
And Chris, having been with PMA for a while, has seen a lot of the good they've done with support of community members and partners. For us in particular, um, we started, you know, right around when the when the pandemic began. And so the needs that we were looking to meet were mainly people needed food. They had just lost their jobs, right? And so some of our main activities include uh, food distributions. We were partnered with um, Unidad Latina en Acción uh, here in town for some time doing food distribution with them. We currently, uh, still active, is our um, senior deliveries program uh, in which I, I believe it's monthly. We deliver you know, boxes of, of groceries and food to seniors in town uh, who are signed up to, to receive assistance from us. Uh, we also have a bikes team. Um, they fix bikes uh, uh, around town that, that we, we receive donations, either from members or just you know people who are looking to donate. We uh, do repairs on those bikes, make sure that they're uh, make sure that they're working properly, and then we give them out for free to community members who you know need some kind of transportation around town. And this is also very helpful for community members uh, who may be undocumented, who may not have access to driver's license. You know, a bike can help them get around from you know to where they need to get around town. I asked Chris what he thought the unique challenges were of working with mutual aid in an area like Princeton, a region with high levels of social stratification and both a world-class university and wealthy neighborhoods, but also real poverty and struggle. Like you said, this area, you know, high income inequality, there's a history of systemic inequities, um, racial and otherwise. It's one thing, I think, to know that intellectually, and it's another thing to kind of walk out, you know, uh, outside the boundaries of campus and sort of see that. There does exist this tension, as Chris points out, between volunteering your time for a charity that doles out aid conditionally and working as part of a mutual aid organization where everyone both contributes and receives some support. Part of this challenge is mental. Participators of mutual aid have to unlearn the conventional metrics and ideas of quote-unquote charity work. I think uh, one of the problems with especially kind of volunteer-minded organizations, right, um, they can fall into this trap of seeing these kinds of experiences as like opportunities for personal growth. Working in mutual aid has been an opportunity for me to see that, um, but I think the most important thing about that is not that um, it represents any sort of personal development for me, but, um, you know, I, I also grew up, you know, poor. Um, and so I think the most important thing is that Having identified those inequalities, um, PMA is more equipped to address them um, than, if they, uh, than if they'd been ignored, basically. A lot of our issues nowadays can just feel so national, so global. The struggles for racial, gender, and religious equality, conflicts over bodily autonomy, and political strife might not feel like they're so connected to small town social issues. But Chris explained to me his view on how mutual aid can figure into this puzzle. Systemic problems require systemic solutions. Um, and I think this is true. Yeah, I think we are facing these kind of systemic issues, but at the end of the day, um, it's like people who are affected by them. What I believe about mutual aid is that um, working at a, at a local level can sort of be those first building blocks. Problems facing our society, you know, are, are systemic in nature. It's important to to recognize that. But I also believe that that those perspectives can inform solutions that are 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 local or regional. I envision a future where we can sort of link those efforts together in a kind of decentralized way and mobilize networks of networks in times of of crisis in order to sort of leverage those moments and and get more concessions from our political leaders than we than we might otherwise. By building these, you know, a decentralized network of mutual aid organizations, we can 
begin to amass the the response that would be necessary to really kind of threaten the people who are you know imposing these these terms on us these terms that that you know we 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 ought to reject unilaterally right Mutual aid advocates argue these networks are the best and most realistic short-term solution to creating a social support system in the United States as income inequality and inflation skyrocket. Yet it's easy to see just how hard this work will be. Unlike a charity, mutual aid teams aren't reliant on a pot of money to draw attention, organizers, or to drum support. They're reliant on people, people with means and without, people with ideas, with skill sets, and with the drive to affect small change that grows into a larger trend. It's all just reliant on getting the idea out there, on getting people involved and getting people invested in change. You should try to, you know, look online. You know, a lot of mutual aid groups uh, have, you know, some kind of online presence, whether that's like a website or um, there are also, you might find groups on Facebook. But yeah, I would encourage people to, to look around and also not just to look online, but also to ask their, their neighbors, ask community members, right? Start asking those questions like, hey, have you heard about um, any groups that are working on you know, this issue that affects you and me? Because that's also a great way to start building those relationships that are necessary to create that change. For WPRB, I'm Adam Sanders. And that's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB studios in Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's producer, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Ashley Olenkowitz, Julian Hartman-Siegel, Clara McWeeney, Izzy Jacobson, Leah Opperman, Mira Ho Chen, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. Our editors are Hannah Lee, Clara McWeeney, Izzy Jacobson, Alan Plotz, and Henry Moses. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. Can't get enough of news and culture? Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts, or at our website at news.wprb.com. That's news.wprb.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WPRB News. That's at WPRB News. News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton. Community-supported, independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.